Sunday School for Misfits, hosted by me, Dr. Selena Stone, a podcast where we, the Misfits, explore the good, the bad, and the questionable of our church experiences and the Christian beliefs and perspectives that we were taught. Welcome and thank you for listening. Hello, everyone. I really wanted to start this episode playing a little bit of Boys to Men Let It Snow because that is my go to Christmas track, but you know, I don't know anything about the legalities of these things. So I decided not to risk it for a biscuit. I didn't really want to be sued by anybody because I can't afford it as a lowly academic, really. But um, I hope that you are playing your music, getting into the vibes of the season. And it's the, what I wanted to talk a little bit about today is Advent, but also a little bit about the Christmas story, which We've probably heard a hundred different times, but I do think that a little bit of rethinking about this story can be quite exciting for us, particularly because when you grow up in church like me and many of you have, stories just get very old very quickly because you hear them every year, don't you? And sometimes you hear it at other times to Christmas, but there is a lot of beauty in this story, particularly when I think about it, drawing on the stuff that I've been talking about through this season. And so I'm going to get all into that stuff. But before I do, I wanted to say a little bit about Advent, which is actually the season that we're in. Now, for those of us who grew up Pentecostal or Evangelical, you probably didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about Advent as a season in itself. I didn't really even know this was a Christian thing, to be perfectly honest, because I only ever knew about Advent calendars those little Cadbury ones where you get a little chocolate every day. And I always used to feel really robbed though. Like some of them, when it got to Christmas Day, they had a really big chocolate, like maybe a Christmas scene in chocolate, which I really obviously appreciated. But others of them would like not, would run out and butt on like Christmas Eve. So you'd like eat all your chocolates and then on Christmas Eve would be the last one. I used to feel so robbed by that. Do you know what I mean? But obviously I'm saying that with a lot of passion, which makes me think maybe I'm not over it. But the point of the, of the story is that I didn't really think about what Advent was about, apart from a countdown to Christmas. That was all I really knew about it. And there was no real explanation about it at all. The Church of England has a lot of issues, but one of the things that I really have loved about, especially the more traditional space in the Church of England, with the robes and the liturgy and all that stuff, is that they do really are quite good at giving you space to embrace these different times of the year and gain all the kind of spiritual benefits that you can from recognizing these different seasons seasons like lent i never grew up doing anything about lent didn't think about lent similarly advent is another time like that that i never grew up thinking about but now it actually is quite a nice thing to think about partly because it gives you a bit of space to just slow down and reflect and just think a little bit about what's happening in my life right now what I can see is happening with my, in my relationship with God, what's happening in the rest of my life. But it is a period of waiting, and this is the gift of Advent, where we get to reflect a little bit on our, our own waiting for God, which I think can be everybody, regardless of their faith or lack of faith. And this is not about waiting for God to arrive, of course, because God has never left, but it's about waiting for God's presence to be made obvious, and for God to act in in our life in whatever way that we're needing at the time. And I've spoken a lot in the in the in the season about not being passive about our lives. 
because I think that for many of us, we grew up with an, with an overemphasis in the other direction. So we were, old, we were told to be overly expectant of God intervening and acting and didn't actually ever imagine we'd have to do something. So I'm often, when I talk about agency a lot, it's because I'm trying to correct some of that imbalance that I think we inherit in a more Pentecostal space. But there's also an importance in recognising that at times in our lives, we are going to be in a time of waiting. We're going to be invited to wait, even though we could use our agency to do something. And I use the language of invitation because good waiting is an active choice. It's something that we actually accept and choose for ourselves. You know, agency for me is a justice question. When I'm told to wait my turn for dignity and respect because of my race or my gender, my marital status or class or whatever, we call that oppression and injustice because that person has not had any say in that that's been imposed upon them by others. But when I, because I'm aware that there are things beyond my understanding or there I have a sense that, that I need to hold back, that waiting can be really positive. When I have a look around and I... And I'm discerning about my life at this time. And I actually decide to wait in view of something that I know is coming, that I really feel is coming ahead. That's a really good thing. That's patience. That's, that's resilience. That's perseverance. But the difference is that you actually get to choose that. You actually get to say, I am going to do this rather than you being told and enforced. And I think that is something that I think we have to pay much more attention to. So Advent is that time of asking, what is it that we're waiting for? What is it that we're waiting for from God in our prayer, in our relationships, in our lives? And what does it mean to see our personal waiting through the, this ultimate story of humanity awaiting the arrival of God, of humanity awaiting this promised saviour? And it's also a time for us to recognise that all of us in different ways find ourselves waiting, even if we might feel sometimes because of the weight of our old waiting, we can often feel as if that was as in weight as in heaviness <laughs> of our own waiting. We can often feel as if we're alone. But everybody's life involves a gap between hope and fulfilment in some way. And this is because all of creation is caught in that gap. We're hoping for things to change in this whole long list of ways, but yet we're still here with it not being fulfilled. That's just the state of what, that's just the reality of what it is to be a living, breathing being in this world, is to have a gap between our hopes and the fulfilment. So what we feel on a personal level, as we wait for the right job, the right partner, better pay, or we wait for children or for improvements in our health or for someone to get their lives together or whatever it might be, all of it is tied into this ultimate waiting that creation is caught up in for this future in which everything is made right. And I don't know exactly what that means. You know, when it comes to eschatology, this whole space of theology, the end times, the end of things, there is so much, so many opinions on what all of that means. But the agreement is, I think, that there is this inbuilt instinct in us, a discomfort with the world as it is, and a longing for something better than this. We're always waiting. Even those of us who might think we have everything we want, you know, we are also in our souls, I imagine. There's a, a, wait, a longing and a waiting because the world is a mess. <laughs> Even if your personal world feels great, the world at large is a mess, that like we're not okay. 
And the story of Christmas, I think, comes to us as this welcome but very unusual intervention in humanity's constant waiting. And the story begins, really, with the words of prophets, which are linked to Jesus in hindsight. One of Isaiah's phrases, for example, is this line that speaks about the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And so we, we have these passages in, in what we as Christians call the Old Testament, what other people will call the Hebrew Bible, because they just want to not talk about Jewish tradition as old. It's a bit disrespectful and can feed some anti-Semitism. Now, darkness is really good for many things. Dark, the dark soil is a place where seeds germinate in order to bring forth new food. It's in the darkness in a part of a pond or un- underneath a lug that all kinds of life grows. Not the kind of life I want to see personally, but, you know, it's life. <laughs> it's in the darkness of the womb that our own lives grew before we were born. So the darkness is, is good. It's a, it's a place where life is created. It's where life is nurtured. But in this passage, darkness is representing a kind of confusion, the kind of darkness where, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night to go toilet and you're stumbling around and stubbing your toe and you're just like, and you're cussing because you don't want to put on the light because it's going to be really bright and really wake you up, but you also need to see where you're going. (laughs) And this is the kind of darkness, like, but it's a deep darkness. It's not just the darkness of you stubbing your toe in your bedroom at night. It's, It's like a deep darkness. It's the kind of darkness that you can't simply fix by turning on a light switch. It's a spiritual darkness, a collective darkness. But somehow in this passage, we find that change happens. These people have seen a great light which has shined on them. And when I think about this, and I imagine it happening in my mind, because that's how my brain is, I think about how uncomfortable it might have been at first. If you dwell in deep darkness and then a light comes on, it's really quite shocking at first, quite uncomfortable. Your eyes need to adjust. They might have been wondering where on earth this light had come from. And lots of people, of course, have seen this metaphor as a metaphor for Christ. And in the gospel passages later on, you know, they carry on this metaphor talking about Christ as the light of the world. And then even the disciples as, as and the church as, as called to be light, salt and light. So this metaphor carries on about who God is, who Christ is in the world, who God's people are supposed to be in the world. But after all of the kind of big prophets say these kinds of things, the people are left waiting. Isaiah makes this statement and then it's like ages before anything happens. The stories are passed down to each generation. Maybe some of the younger people start to lose faith and some of the older people might even start to doubt. And then one day, out of the blue, without any reason as to why it would happen at this particular time, something happens in this small overlooked town. And of all of the stories in in the Bible, the account of the birth of Jesus is probably the one that people think they know quite well. Whether you're Christian or you're not, our imaginations have been captured by the tale of this little baby born in a stable because there was no room in the inn. But when we look a little bit deeper at this story that we're so familiar with, we find that there's some really great stuff to offer here, more than just these warm, fuzzy feelings or or good material for a a nativity play. It's more than just a story of a little family from a long time ago, or a moral lesson about saying yes to God like Mary. Like, there's so much more going on here that I want to get into a little bit, because I think it's just wonderful. And the Christmas story, I think, represents the moment where God 
presents God's self to humanity in a totally unexpected way and acts in human history in a way that is almost and it often is missed by many people even those who are looking out for God there's a word in it you know because I think we and I'm gonna go preachy just a little bit (laughs) but there's something very profound about this story because I think that we tells us that often we have an idea about how God should go about something what God must do but God's ways are not our ways God's thoughts are not our thoughts and at times there are things that happen that we're thinking I never expected this to be how it would go but actually God understands at a deep level what God is trying to do in us in our communities and our families in the world and so we have to be open to the unexpected when it comes to God that we might have, we might be so committed to thinking, oh, God must do this in this particular way. This is how God's going to do this based on what we might have seen before. But God is like, I'm going to turn up and it's going to look like nothing you've seen before. It's going to be the most random, unexpected thing. But when I do it in this way, it is going to mark history for centuries, forever. And this is the story. This young brown woman, a Jewish woman from a family without money or status has a vision of an angel. A random girl had the vision of an angel from an unimportant town, an unimportant place. And this angel tells her she's going to have a baby who will be God's son and will be king over this new, this eternal kingdom. And this is a direct quote from Luke chapter one. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. It's just stunning, isn't it? It's just stunning. This is an interesting passage, right? Because there are many people in the Bible who, when they hear the call of God, they're like, how will this be? And out of all of them, this feels like one of the most crucial. Because what the angel is telling Mary is not just unusual, but it's impossible, humanly speaking. Now, by now, you know that these kind of things are, can be difficult for me. Having grown up in a very, very faithful context, which didn't always do well with the kind of critical reflection, I can very easily swing to the other way of only believing in what makes logical sense and not being open to the potentially impossible and miraculous. But when I was reading this again to prepare for this, I felt really inspired to believe in those things that don't always make sense in our natural minds. Because there are some things that I think God has in God's mind for us as humanity Also, as individuals, I think, which we can't attain by simply working hard or trying to be pragmatic. And this is a word for me because I really got into a pragmatic place in my mind. This has been reminding me that actually there's things that are are going on out there, Selena, that have nothing to do with your pragmatism and agency (laughs) and my my sense of what's possible. There can be a miraculous element to how we end up in particular places or with particular people or in particular circumstances. And though it might make me feel a bit nervous because on the one hand, I think I like to have a clear plan and consistency and know who's covering what. And you can't always get that clarity with God. I do think that it, there's a, it adds some magic to life and some excitement to life when you realise that it doesn't all depend on you. Anyway, the thing I really like about this, this passage is that Mary does not pretend that she understands what's going on. <laughs> when I read this, I'm now I'm like, oh, Mary, I am so much like you. Mary is like, what are you on about? It says, I mean, the Bible says Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I paraphrase as 
Mary screwed up her face and said, what on earth are you talking about? Because <laughs> that's how I, that's what I would do. I like that Mary doesn't do this pious, churchy, churchwoman thing of saying, okay, yes, I understand, I accept, I receive this. She kind of vindicates me because I'm, I'm very like this with God. She's like, how are you going to do this? I'm a virgin. Like, it doesn't make sense. She's not pretending. She's open with the fact that she doesn't understand. She asks many questions. And the angel answers her and points her to another miraculous sign to prove that what they're saying is not made up but a real thing. Now, the story of Jesus being born can seem like a story in which it's just down to God. God fulfilling God's promise. But it isn't. So many people are involved with this happening. For sure, it's initiated by God, but so many other people have to be involved with the story for it to take place. The prophets have to speak up about what they believe in God is saying. Mary isn't impregnated or forced to give birth. She consents. But Mary goes to see her cousin to, to check out the story. Like, I like, I like her. She's doing her due diligence. She's like, I've seen a vision of an angel. And I've heard the angel say this and that to me. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and see for myself. <laughs> I'm going to go to my cousin Elizabeth. I can't call her because it's, you know, look at where we are in history. I'm going to go and travel to see Elizabeth and see Wagwan and just find out, is this, is this legit? Or am I hallucinating? She, she goes on a fact-checking exercise. And I imagine myself in the house of Elizabeth on this day that Mary arrives. I wonder whether she knew ahead of time that Mary was coming. But probably not. So Mary arrives out of the blue at her house when Elizabeth is sweeping or she's cooking or she's doing whatever, picking some flowers maybe. And Elizabeth has been hiding in her house for five months since she miraculously became pregnant. And I wonder why she's hiding. I'm thinking, is she hiding because she's thinking, I look ridiculous, I have grey hair and I'm, and I'm pregnant? Is she, is she hiding because she's worrying about whether she's going to be able to carry the baby to term? She's nervous about being out and about and at her age and all that Maybe she's just exhausted because she's old and she's growing a human being inside her body. That wherever the options are, she's hiding away in her house. And as Mary enters the house and says, hey, Elizabeth, hey, cuz, her baby jumps. And Elizabeth prophesies before Mary even gets to tell her what happened, (laughs) what's going on. (laughs) It's like the best girls catch up ever. And Elizabeth then commends Mary for her faith in believing that the impossible was possible. There's no doubt in Elizabeth's mind that this is God's doing because she's also living in the middle of a miracle as well. And I think about how powerful this moment must have been for Mary, who, by the way, hasn't, doesn't, we don't see a record of her telling Joseph anything. Like she's like, before I go and disturb this man's peace, <laughs> let me go and double check with Elizabeth that this is legit. And then we'll cross that bridge when we get there. And when it turns out that the angel's words are true, that Elizabeth's pregnancy, It dawns on Mary that what the angel said to her must also be true. And she begins to recite these words, which we now call the Magnificat. And I'm going to read it because it's quite great. Luke chapter 1, 46 to 55. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For God has been mindful of the humble state of God's servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is God's name. God's mercy extends to those who fear God from generation to generation. God has performed mighty deeds with God's arm. God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. God has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. God has filled the hungry with good things, but God has sent the rich away empty. 
God has helped God's servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his and his descendants forever, just as God promised our ancestors. The birth of Jesus is astounding for many reasons. And we often acknowledge the incarnation as a miraculous moment of God making a home among us by taking on human form. But this song of Mary, this Magnificat, is also wonderful because of what it means for those who find themselves forgotten and neglected, for the humble and the hungry. Throughout Jesus' life, he constantly leans towards those who no one else is interested in, those who are on the margins. We've talked about this many, I've talked about this many times. But here, before Jesus has even grown up, before God, Jesus has even had a chance to do anything, because he's just growing in Mary's womb, Mary has this prophetic sense of what this means for everyone, what the reordering that this is about to create in the world. And while Mary may be thinking about this only regarding her own story as a tale of God exalting the humble and filling the hungry with good things, I mean, it's funny because she literally will be filled with this good thing (laughs) as she grows through her pregnancy. But this is not just about her because Jesus is going to be the one who embodies a kingdom just like this, where the poor inherit and the rich must be humble to enter in, where those who hunger are filled and those who seem to have it all end up realising that they have that they actually have nothing. And Mary is the mother of the king of this kingdom and her poem is a statement to announce the beginning of this new way of being in the world. And later on as the story goes on and, and Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem for the census, we see we hear the stuff that Jesus is born and then we see different groups of people who are kind of told about this happening are invited to come and see. And it's interesting, even though the people who are invited and who are notified about this, for example, the Magi, these are people coming from the East. The indication being that they're not Jewish people. They're not from the people of Israel. They're coming from a totally different part of the world. And the stars align to to present a sign that Jesus is being born. So a little bit of holy astrology there. I don't want to freak anybody out. But interestingly, Christians have not always had a problem with astrology. It's very common now for Christians to be really nervous about astrology. But because of this exact moment in the Christmas story where the stars actually align to present a sign to say that Jesus has been born, Christians historically have been okay with the stars because they're like, well, the stars themselves are telling us Jesus was born, so why would we see them as, see astrology as something bad? I'm not telling anybody to go read horoscopes, I'm just saying, like, the astrology is what leads the Magi to Jesus, right? So I'm just going to leave that there for a second because we don't have time <laughs> to go down this road. <laughs> and I'm trying not to open too many cans of worms at once, which is hard for me because I like to be mischievous. But then we hear about the angels appearing to the shepherds. He must have been quite amazed that they, this group of scruffy looking and probably quite smelly guys in a field, would somehow end up on a VIP list to see Jesus, you know. I mean, of all the people, if you were going to do it now, if you were, if you were the PR manager of the birth of Jesus, you'd be like, right, we need to bring him to New York, maybe to Paris, maybe to London, Tokyo, do a little global tour. Make sure we've got a really good social media campaign. Get some really rich and famous people to pass through and take some photographs and make sure everybody knows Jesus is born. That's that's the way we go about it. We would think if we want to get this message out there, we need to make sure that the most powerful people are the first ones to know what's happening so they can spread the word and, and get it popping. But this is not what happens when Jesus is born. The opposite happens. The people who are the most unhelpful people for promoting the message are the ones who get it. 
the people who don't even are not, are not even Jewish <laughs> and the shepherds <laughs> it's like these are not the people to tell if you want you know the Jews to know that the Messiah is here it's just very funny but for the shepherds this must have been quite a highlight chasing sheep around a field in the winter you know why I said winter because in all the Christmas pictures it's always cold but we don't even know if it was winter do we that the, the for the shepherds this must have been amazing and Mary, who, of course, is having probably some of the most surreal experiences of her young life, finds herself with this newborn baby in a, in a stable with these random shepherds hanging around saying that angels came to sing us a song about your baby being born. I mean, what do you even say to that? <laughs> okay, thanks. Good to, good to meet you. It's so much to get your head around. And the scriptures say that Mary treasured up these things in her heart. And I always like this phrase. It's only a tiny line in the story, but I always like it because I think, oh, it reminds me, I think, of the importance of treasuring good things. I I don't always treasure good things in my heart, if I'm honest. Uh, I mean, maybe one or two of you out there, it might be similar. Somebody does something wrong to me. It can take me a little bit of a while to let it go. I Because I have a strong sense of justice. So when something's done wrong to me, and I feel like you couldn't, you, you know, I feel it, I feel, I feel a way about it, you know, and I do, I can treasure it. I can really treasure it. <laughs> I can treasure my failures, the things that I think I'm not that great at, despite all the long list of things I'm good at. And it does sound like I'm bragging, because I probably am slightly. <laughs> but of all the things, of all the things that I'm good at, there were things that I'm, that I'm not good at, or things that I'm insecure about, and I can really meditate on that. I can really treasure those things in my heart, you know. If somebody says uh, sends me an email or a, or a DM that's not nice, I can really treasure it and let it really get down in my heart and, and affect me. And I think when I read this passage, it says, oh, don't, don't treasure those things. Don't give value to those things and hold on to them and grab hold of them. Those people who doubt that you can do what you want to do, those people who have those, you know in yourself what you're capable of, but these people are telling you, I don't think so. I've had that happen to me as well, multiple times. Don't treasure those things. Treasure the good things. Treasure these surprising, miraculous, incredible moments where you actually ended up with something wonderful that you didn't expect. Treasure those things that way that stranger who you don't even really know that well sends you some encouraging words. Treasure that colleague who says something really kind to you that day or treasure that person that memory of that person who gave you a really small gift that was so meaningful to you like treasure those things treasure that time when you were really down and you went for a war and you felt God speak to you treasure those things in your heart and and those are the things that I think can bolster us when we're going through the really tough times treasure those experiences of love that you have that when you feel like you're isolated that you remember that there's love for you in the world, like treasure those things. Because Mary treasures these things in her heart. These moments of amazement, of awe, where God has broken through so incredibly that she can't even believe what she's experiencing. She keeps hold of her joy. She ponders the mystery of God's faithfulness. She allows these wonderful things to be to build up a story in her heart so that she can draw on those things in the future. And as we, we know how the story goes, so we know that she'll have to draw on them. And interestingly, she doesn't open up these things for discussion. She doesn't chat about these things with Joseph. She doesn't chat about them with anyone. She keeps them in her heart. She doesn't allow people to critique it and to evaluate it. She treasures in her heart those things that are important for her. Because sometimes the best thing you can do is treasure something to yourself. And this is now how I think about this Christmas story as this really quite amazing 
moment that's quite revolutionary and radical. I just think it gives us so much, as I already said, to ponder in our world right now. That when we think about the baby Jesus born into these circumstances, it should, I could I hope, open our hearts up to recognising the preciousness, the beauty of life, the unexpectedness of life. That can be really good. We get lots of unexpected, difficult things in life. But this, I think, is a story of unexpected, surprising amazingness. Amazingness isn't a word, but you know what I mean. It's not just about my personal saviour being born. There's so much more going on in the story than just that. When I read this story with this with these lenses on, I like to imagine God planning this all and thinking, this is how I'm going to do it and it's going to change the world. So this is what I'm celebrating in this season. This is what I'm awaiting and will then be celebrating in this season. And, um, and it gives me great, great joy. In, and I would say, before I end, my kind of notice today would be, at the end of this first season, I'm going to have a little break over Christmas. As I said, we'll run this in a termly fashion, so we'll come back in the new year. But while we're in the middle of the season and we've got a cost of living crisis going on, we're dealing with so much in our own personal lives as well. And when we, as we think a little bit about this Jesus, he's born into this context, into this world. It makes me wonder whether it might lead us to take some particular action in terms of how we are in solidarity with those people who are living like this now. You know, in our, in our world, in our country right now, in the world right now, we have so many people who are born into a world in which they have nothing. They might not even have like, a place to even be born. Well, we see this now, we think, oh my God, like, thank God we're not in a time anymore when babies are born and don't have anywhere to be. Like, this, this happens every day. It, across the world, we have people living in inhumane conditions, having babies like Mary did, in situations that for us would be a nightmare. Families who are displaced, who are travelling and wandering, not just on a donkey to, a, to Bethlehem, but to a place that they don't even know moving out of their homelands because of war, because of conflict, because of violence. This is happening in our world all the time. And as we as we think of this story in its context and we think about the life that Jesus was born into, the point of it I think is that we might be moved to solidarity with those who are living like this today. And I know that in this season we can all want to enjoy ourselves and whatever else. But I would just say as we come to the end of this year and you're you're planning for your next year, as I mean, I always do this, I have a really good reflection time. I think a good thing to do, particularly for those of us who don't pay tithes and offering, <laughs> because I haven't done that in a while, to be honest. And that's what happens when you don't have a, a church for home. Um, I'm not going to comment anymore on that because that's another podcast episode. But it might be a good time to think about how might I give some of what I have to families, to children, to older people who are isolated, to people who are sleeping rough, to people who are living with food poverty, heat poverty, all these kinds of things are going on around us. Maybe as you're planning for next year, you might think, actually, I want to set up a direct debit for this particular charity. I want to feed some young people. I want to I want to set up a direct debit for my food for the local food bank in my area or for the homeless shelter in my area. I want to I want to give some money to ending youth violence or to helping refugees or to the people who are in Haiti right now or in Pakistan. Like there are places around the world right now that are so devastating. And this God who has come to us in complex circumstances, who identifies with the hungry and the homeless and the poor, he might be the he might be calling us to do something in this time, even if it's something small. So I leave that with you as you're 
enjoying your Christmas festivities and wrapping up warm and, and doing your food shopping. Um, let us be those people who have our minds on more than just ourselves. Let us not play into that self-centeredness that is so common in our time. And let us maybe represent something different in the world in this season because it's going to be so desperately needed for so many people. Maybe it's just someone on your road where you live who you know is struggling at the moment. Maybe you can lend a hand. And maybe that might be the way that someone experiences God this Christmas through your actions and through your love with them. But thank you all very much. And um, it's been an absolute privilege. And I will keep on getting better at this. I want to thank you for your patience as I've taught and figured out the technology because I am an amateur. <laughs> and one of my friends said to me, oh, you sound like you're in the bathroom on one episode. And I best start laughing because I thought, actually, I listened back and I thought I do. But thank you for your patience. And next season is going to be the Church Girl series. It's going to be a slightly different take to where we've been this season. I wanted to begin with some theology and some framework for how we might think going forward. And as we go through the seasons, this stuff will be even more helpful because it will give you a sense of where I'm coming from. But next season, we're going to be doing a church girl series, which is not just going to be for women, actually. It's going to be reflecting on what those of us who grew up in the church as young women have experienced and what impact that's had on us as we've grown older. And we're going to be thinking about this, not just in terms of theology, because we've done a lot of that this in this season, but we're going to be thinking about what we learn about our bodies, about our sexuality, about what femininity meant, how we relate to other people, and all those kinds of things. So it's going to be fun, I think. It's going to be really fun. Thank you so much, everybody. And I really look forward to connecting with you again after the holidays. Look after each other, rest well, and I will speak to you all very soon. Mm-hmm.